Welcome to HivriaCast, the podcast where I, Aladna Harai, speak with some fascinating and incredible creative Jews. Hello, it is your host Rifka Naharai today, and I'm here with a very special guest, Lenore Mizrahi Kohn, who is a conceptual artist based in Brooklyn. Welcome, Lenore. Thanks for having me. Um, we also have a special treat today that I'm on two hours of sleep, <laughs> and we were debating if we should do this or not, but this is going to be Rifka super sleep deprived, and maybe we can get really to the heart of Lenore's work. And um, what she's thinking about, I'm actually really excited to have a conceptual artist. I didn't actually realize that's how you classified yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just excited that to speak with a visual artist, because I know you work primarily with visual. Yes. Um, So I was excited, number one, about that, because I don't feel like I meet a lot of like dedicated Jewish visual artists even, even though I know there's a lot out there. Um, But conceptual artists, I'd love to hear more about that. Right. So uh, it's important for me to make that distinction because when I first began my career way back, you know, 10 years ago, um, I think most artists start out just as decorative. It's like this sense of, hey, I have this interest and I want to see how far I can go with it and look how much fun it is to play with paint and you'll make some really pretty things and have some early success because people like buying pretty things too, right? So like, I can do this forever. Yeah. I'm just going to make so much money doing what I love. <laughs> this is great. Yes. Um, but for me, there came a certain point at which um, doing the purely decorative stuff just wasn't um, enough to justify continue doing it. It wasn't maybe interesting enough for me. Mm-hmm. But also there's, you know, when you kind of move forward in your life and now maybe you've got a couple kids or you've got other things demanding on your time and it's like well I'm not just gonna sit there and like play around maybe some people would I don't know I'm my own worst slave driver but anyway um so I was thinking about a lot of things and I thought why don't I express them through my art because that's what I do best so the best way I can give it over and I think that's where the conceptual part really comes out because you know I'll have people that come visit my show, maybe that knew me from before, and they'll be like, oh, you know, I was excited to see your paintings. I, I like how you paint. I wasn't expecting so much photography and embroidery and these weird cut Arabic calligraphy letters scattered across the floor. And it's like, you know, I hear it. But for me, at the same time, all of that weird stuff going on is where, when it gets interesting. That's the reason mm-hmm. to keep going. That's where the, the good stuff happens. I, I, I want to try and make things that only I could think of. I think that's what is going to ultimately set anybody apart as any type of artist is doing things they can uniquely do. Because if someone else can do this or could have thought of this or executed it, why am I doing it? Mm. I mean, it's interesting because to speak with you, um, I pretty much right away get the sense that you're a thinker, you know? Um, I mean, you have, you were raised in New York, right? Yes. So you also have the quick like New York way of like thinking oh, for sure. and expressing, yeah. but you obviously have a lot on your mind and a lot of ways in which you're thinking. So it makes to me perfect sense that you would go into this conceptual. Yeah. I guess there would be no way for me to get away from it because it's the way that I was raised. I mean, my father just recently got a smicha, but was always a Talmud Chacham. He's now a rabbi. Uh, my mom is in college now. Wow. My brother is a PhD. Like we were just like a very academic thinking family. My sister's a teacher. Like it just runs in the family. It's just natural. I don't. I don't know how it is to like I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? Sometimes great because you're arriving at maybe interesting conclusions, but at the same time, it doesn't stop. And you can't turn off your brain. Yeah. Like there is no just being. Yeah. Do you have interesting, did you have interesting dinners growing up? Was there a lot well, of like yeah. debate? Yeah, of course. Uh, sometimes too much, right? Typical <laughs> <laughs> screaming family. No, but it's great because it sharpens your intellect and makes you, my parents are very big on thinking critically. And so that means there's always a question and a 
exploration process from whatever I'm going to encounter, wherever I am, I'm going to be evaluating and coming to new conclusions. And that, that means for me, thinking about my artwork in different ways, which is exciting because then your work is always changing too, as your life changes. I, don't, I would never want to think I'm stagnating or doing the same thing over and over. So I, on the one hand, you could look at my work on my website and maybe think, hey, that's a little scatterbrained. You've got like 10 different series going on. But at the same time, all right, if I think of something, I don't want to not make it. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. So there's so many different directions we could go. Yeah. I want to make sure that we first dive into your newest project, um, which is happening right now. Yes. Um, Culture Shock. Yes. It's a solo show at Black Diamond Gallery. It's in Williamsburg. Um, it's opened already on May 9th, and we have two upcoming events uh, this Sunday, May 19th, I'm doing an artist talk. So if anybody is interested to see the work that comes out of all these discussions and interested in the topics we're talking about today, I would urge you to come join us uh, at 3 p.m. this Sunday at 332 Hooper Street. That's Black Diamond Gallery. Uh, then we're going to have a happy hour later next month, June 6th. That's through Jaimena. It's a great organization that I really love to work with. Uh, they stand for Jews Indigenous to the Middle East and North Africa. Mm. They've got an excellent speaker, Joseph Bodhi, coming to host the event and guest speak about his work uh, creating Arab media, uh, Arabic language media for the Arab world. That's very much about bridging gaps and creating more understanding between Jews and Muslims. Uh, he's an author, broadcaster, Wow. journalist, a fantastic personality. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to meet him and see about the intersect between our types of work. I use a lot of Arabic calligraphy in my work. It, it's also very much about that connection point and Arab identity for everyone, not only Jews or Muslims. You know, there's many types of Arabs. Maybe yeah. that's not a distinction we make very often, but I feel like it's important to say it because we always come up against a lot of um, misconceptions, misnomers about this, that there are many types of Muslims. There are Jewish, Christian, and Islamic Muslim, uh, Arabs, mm -hmm. <laughs> sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm also tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this yeah. is also a podcast about being um, a mother artist mm, and, that, and that juggle. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that, that happy hour event is 7 p.m. June 6th with Joseph Brody. I urge you to come to either that one or the Sunday again, May 19th at Black Diamond Gallery. Awesome. Um, so if we should say what's at the yeah, gallery. <laughs> so, so what, what is this Culture Shack? So, what is okay, this, this is a title that I worked with the curator at the gallery, Lindsay Blair, to come up with. And it, it's kind of a good meeting place between the three different series that I have on display there. Um, all of them are generally about this almost clash of cultures, but also the past and the present and that space in which they meet. You know, we're all of us carrying around a blueprint DNA of everything that came before us, whether we realize it or not. And my work is meditating a lot on what that means for us as we go forward and live our lives. How much does the past have an effect on us? Do we want it to? Are we improving on the past? Is it good that we're losing some of what came before? Or should we be making more of a conscious effort to think critically about what we let go and what we hold on to? I, I don't know that a lot of people are really thinking about these things. Um some maybe we'll get into later why it wasn't came into such such sharp relief for me growing up I'd where I did and how it, I yeah. did. Um, but basically, in the gallery, I've got one series called Culture Shift that is mainly about that. Mm -hmm. And you know, everything grows organically. So that's kind of where this whole thought process for the show started was with that one series, and there's four artworks from there hanging. 
Then I've also got covering all four walls of the gallery, this great 380 square foot mural that I did Mm. basically like the week of opening. That was fun. Uh, It's canvas hanging floor to ceiling. It's an immersive painted uh, Arabic calligraphy mural. It's got about, I have a list of like 150 Judeo-Arabic phrases from my community that were in use like 100 years ago. I use them in my artwork all the time. I love them. They're Mm. witty. They're poignant. They're still relevant. They're amazing. Could you give me an example? Um, For sure. I was just going to say I use them in the artwork and there's like a hundred or more that I know of and I could only fit about 40 there. But anyone who comes to the show can actually see all of them printed up on the side so you can get a better look at them in English. Um, Some favorites. They're so, they're they're great. So there's one that I put up there. um, The lazy one is an advice giver. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I actually, like, I'm trying to learn about coaching. And there's this awesome book I got um, on Amazon. And he's, like, trying to coach you, like, how not to give advice. Mm-hmm. And he, he's, like, try to recognize, like, when you get that trigger point when you want to give advice, you mm-hmm. know? Because mm-hmm. it's, like, you feel like you're helping so much, but it's, like, no, no, no. Maybe you need to focus in. Yeah. Um, another one, a person cannot carry two melons in one hand. Nice. Um, let's see what else, um, everything forbidden is sought after. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of them have parallels in specific, you know, in Michelet and Jewish thought, mm-hmm. uh, it is a Judeo Arabic collection. So the way in which like the grammar is structured is kind of similar to Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Arabic is full of a lot of variation, many dialects, every town almost in the Arab world has its own dialect of Arabic. What um, do you speak? I unfortunately do not speak a fluent Arabic. I'm waiting until I'm in a better position in life to really focus on it. Mm -hmm. Do your parents? Uh, My dad does. He studied in college, though. Mm -hmm. And this is a big theme, again, going back to the artwork, it Mm -hmm. plays out there, is um, when you're part of an immigrant or refugee community, I think that language is very often the first thing to go. Mm -hmm. You come somewhere new, and in most cases, they're just like, I want to blend in. Right, right, right. We're not speaking this at home. Mm -hmm. My great-grandparents spoke it, obviously, but... um, and, and their children, my grandma, like, you know, she knows it, but I, I very rarely ever heard them speak it, except for, it's funny. It's like sometimes that, oh, we want to fit in, like, let's just pretend this isn't a thing. And we don't, we're not Arabs, we don't speak Arabic. But then it'll just come out in slang. So like mm-hmm. everyone in the whole community knows about like 50 different little slang phrase words that we use as English. And there's always that funny moment when you like start meeting people outside the community, when to grow up and you use these words and right. people look at you funny and you're like, what? Doesn't everyone just... Right, right, right. Like they're just out of habit. It's, it's funny. It's weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm waiting. I read and write, obviously, because I do the calligraphy and I can phonetically sound it out. And sometimes it's, it'll be so similar to Hebrew that you can kind of discern what the mm-hmm. general sense and meaning is. And I've tried at various points over the last 10 years to study it more seriously, but it's, it's hard in the U.S., you can usually find teachers going English to Arabic, which is like breaking your teeth, like for no reason. Mm. I'm waiting till I find like a good Arabic to Hebrew. Yeah. Makes a lot more sense. That's a good plan. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure to go through the other two parts of it if you wanted to talk yeah. about them. And then I'd love to like hear more about family history. And is your husband Syrian? Also Syrian. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> um, so the other parts of the show, we've got the Al-Amfal, which means the phrases, which I titled in English, Forget Me Not, because the whole thing starts out black at the top of the ceiling and it fades into white as you move down the wall. And then I actually hand cut many hundreds of smaller paper white letters that are scattered around the rim of the floor. And it's like this whole sense of, you know, it, things fade from memory, especially language and 
cultural mores over time, they change and they fade. But if you are paying attention, you can kind of bring them forth and keep them concretely alive in a new form, mm -hmm. but they'll still be there if mm -hmm. you want them to be. So that's around the whole gallery. We spoke about uh, culture shift, which is the vintage photography. Oh, so I didn't speak about what those artworks actually are. They're about, you know, are we forgetting the past? How similar are we and how different are we from everybody that came right before us? There's not that much space. Uh, there is a lot of space, right? With Syria to here. But time, only 100 years, but everything's so radically, radically different. Um, I actually use... That it's been 100 years since m the community Yeah, came I mean, over. my the whole community came over during the span of the last 100 years. So mm -hmm. there are some people who came within the last 20 years, but... My personal family came over about 100 years ago. But I think in all cases, there's not really that relatively that much time between your ancestors and you. Right. And yet in today's day and age, things change so rapidly that if you look at photos from you know place A to place B, we just look like an entirely different people. And mm -hmm. that's nuts. Mm -hmm. So I actually um, was lucky enough to have a few community members who were willing to let me look through their archive of old family photos. Um, so I pulled through until I found ones that really spoke about, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. Sometimes you just look at a photo and you know exactly what it's about. Mm -hmm. So I found a couple that jumped out at me. They, they looked like they were about, you know, one, for example, is called Hero. It looks like, who are we venerating in our society? Who are we encouraging our kids to emulate? And, you know, there's this little boy posed on a statue of some like warrior poet in a park in Syria. Mm. His name is Abu Firhas. It was like a folk legend. And I mean, the statue is probably destroyed now, but this little, wow. little boy is posing on it. And so on the other side, I took a photo from the same family where they took a trip to Disneyland and they posed their kid on the statue mm. of Mickey Mouse. Wow. You know, and so it's like, it's just like, what? It's mm. like a cultural whiplash. Right, right, you know? right, right. Wow. Uh, things like that, I'll, I'll take the photos and they're transparent, mm -hmm. print them on transparent paper and I'll juxtapose them together in such a way that you're seeing them through each other and across the generations, like those two kids are holding hands and sitting next to each other, even though they're on two different statues or, you know, have a, whatever, but you should come see it. Uh, there's a, so what I did was I took the concept of whatever the photo was about yeah. and I took that word in Arabic, scripted it many, many, many times, dozens, hundreds of times. I would cut them out with surgical knives and scissors mm -hmm. and then apply the calligraphy to the photos themselves. And then there's also a another level of embroider back and forth. So it's a kind of like these tenuous threads that are holding us together with our past and they suspend from the ceiling and they flutter around in this really delicate, transient way. Again, conceptual art, right? Beautiful. There's a lot of concepts and, and I feel like my job as, the, as an artist is to bring together visually in this one sum up image all these different concepts that I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it may not be, again, like, hey, it's not so pretty. I mean, I think they are pretty. But sometimes... Right, the know, kind of feedback you get. Yeah, like, but... Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I have so many questions. Okay. <laughs> this should be like a three-hour podcast. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> we didn't okay. even talk about the Jewish stuff. There's a whole Jewish series in there, too. Nice. Okay, we should mm. totally get to that. I guess one question I want to ask is... Hmm. One question I have is where... At what point do you get the most pleasure from this experience? Because for me, art making, there's a lot of pleasure involved, you know. And I, I also definitely love conceptual. Um, I don't, I don't go to the level and the experimentation and the like sculptural um, you installation okay, aspect of gotta it. Gotta be okay with letting it get weird and then never <laughs> selling anything ever again. I mean, this is very inspiring. <laughs> um, but I still like to think a lot about like what's behind it. Anyways, but for me, 
I really want to get a lot of pleasure out of the experience. And I want to like, when I, I want to be alone and I want to mm. be just like tactile and playing with paint and color and, and like just feeling this, like, I feel like art should be very pleasurable, but so I feel like every artist has for an sure. experience. So for, for you, where, it, where do you find the most pleasure in the experience? Is it when people are viewing it? Is it when you're kind of alone creating it? Or is it when you're just th- like thinking mm-hmm. about it? Well, I think if if the answer to that was that I get the pleasure when people are viewing it, then I would be just like a really sad person. <laughs> I'm going to be so depressing, right? Because if the, for the one minute that someone might right. view something, there's probably about 100 hours that go into creating that thing. Right. So I'm definitely, like, I don't think I would sustainably be able to continue doing this if it was all those 100 hours leading up to that minute. That minute's great. Mm-hmm. It's very fulfilling and, and rewarding in that moment. Yeah. I love hearing feedback. Um Artists have egos. Let's just say it. <laughs> we like it. Right? Right. Um, you're kind of bearing your soul and putting out your feelings and thoughts into something. So yeah, it's nice to get good feedback. But ultimately, um, definitely scripting calligraphy, like dipping your column, the comos, it's a, you know, the reed pen into the ink and just watching it flow and seeing, especially when happy accidents happen and maybe mm-hmm. it's going to do something you didn't expect, but now it's even better. The discovery, uh, you know, the, there's a flow state Mm-hmm. that you enter into when you're working that I don't think happens at any other point. And maybe people experience this like if they're cooking, for example, mm-hmm. if they're like filling their freezer with a lot of something. So, okay, you committed. I'm just going to sit down here for the next couple of hours and work on this one thing. And it almost frees up your brain. Once you get in the hang of what you're actually doing, your brain is free to wander and just enjoy and maybe think, make some free associations for other things. Or sometimes you're not thinking at all, but you're just, I don't know. How mm-hmm. better describe that? I you get it because you're an artist. I'm just trying yeah. to make it like more accessible. I, mean, I think the fl- yeah, the flow makes a lot of sense. The flow state, good um, music, good vibes. Nobody's bothering me. Like I love my family. I love, love, right. love them. But that those precious few moments where you can just breathe, right. focus on this black ink, which doesn't need anything right now from me. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Yeah. Um, so as a mother artist, do you do you like some artists are like I need five hours straight. You know, I can't do it if I can't like get in, I can't get in the flow like that. What's your opinion on your own, your own practice? Uh, So I definitely started out that way. And those are some of my favorite moments early on is when you step back from the easel and you're like, wow, that was seven hours. I didn't even feel it. It was amazing. (laughs) Look what I did. And that was fantastic. But I think that as your reality changes, if you're going to want to accommodate other things into your life, which I do, again, like I said, I love spending time with my kids. I love my family. Thank God for them every day. So if you're going to, accept those other things into your life and want to balance all those plates up. So something's got to give and it's about priorities. So in the beginning, it was a big struggle for me to realize like, you know, maybe you're not going to get those five hours. Mm -hmm. You might get a half hour. You might get two minutes one day and it used to drive me crazy. Then I actually was lucky enough to sit down a couple of times with a fantastic artist. Her name is Andy Arnovitz. Mm -hmm. She was based in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Also conceptual artist. She's a very, very inspiring figure. And, you know, she has her whole own... You know, she's in a more advanced stage of her career, and and she was really able to advise me in this very important little nugget. I guess that kind of stuck, and I'm lucky that it did. And I, it took a lot, a long time to internalize it, but it's very important for being able to continue or have some measure of sanity at all. Maybe some people have a different approach, but what she said to me was, just accept that there's going to be times where all you get is ten minutes, but you're going to do something mm-hmm. with those ten minutes. And mm-hmm. if you look back over ten years of doing ten minutes a day. That person's certainly going to have accomplished a lot more in developing or even keeping their hand practiced in their art, whatever it might be, creative writing, art, physical, visual, whatever. 
you do 10 minutes a day, you're going to have something at the end. Whereas if you just throw your hands up and say, oh, that's it. I don't have my five hours, so I'm just not going to do anything. Well, then you're not going to have anything. Right. Do you really try to do 10 minutes a day? Like at least? Um, I don't know if I have it like set like that. I think it fluctuates depending on where I'm at at any given season or year. You know, if, if a baby is young and they're taking lots of great naps, fantastic. Maybe you don't have a good napper, so you're just going to work at night, but then you're tired at night. I don't know. Like it's not an exact science. It's right. just, I work, I think maybe better about with deadlines. I kind of structure the year ahead. I look at, okay, what opportunities do I have coming up? Am I going to have this gallery show coming up? Let's say, am I going to have this biennial that I need to make work in? And I'll put those in the calendar and, and then just in a more general sense, make deadlines for myself. Like, okay, um, by September, I need to have accomplished X, Y, Z. And so a little mm-hmm. bit before that happens, I'll look maybe at the beginning of every week and say, okay, what's my week looking like? Mm-hmm. I, I lean on family a lot. God bless them. <laughs> nice. um, they help with babysitting if I really need it. But otherwise, like this year, for example, I've just tried to work during my daughter's nap time. And then there you go, those two hours a day. And now I somehow finished all the work for the show. So like it just... Amazing. It happens somehow. I don't know. That's really inspiring. Nights, weekends, you trim the fat a lot, right? Like you're, if you want your hours, so then you're going to have to make sure to work doubly hard outside of those hours to make sure to cross off everything on your list. So that when you walk in there, your really head is clear and you can actually do good work. That's great. You've got to be efficient. Like there's just no. Yeah, that's great. Um, I have another kind of practical question. Um, I think something that would be kind of scary for people to take the leap into conceptual is, as you mentioned, the financial aspect of like, what do I, because if people think about, oh, I'm going to make a painting, it'll be pretty, you know, or it'll be interesting and people will want to buy it. How do you look at this? How does the financial, like as much how as you want to play, disclose, yeah, how does, like, it how, play does into it, it? how does that work and what's your method of... Um, so in the beginning, I think you would be very hard pressed to find any artist, conceptual or otherwise, working anywhere on the planet that is purely making a living off of their art. Right. And I have had that told to me so many times. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just, you know, there are teaching artists. There are artists like when I first started out, I was doing a lot of graphic design. And that really helps. It was like a big deal to have something that could support whatever I need and free up, I guess, my brain to do other things. I'm not putting the pressure of selling on my art because that also changes what you're going to make, right? If you're concerned, if you're making your art earn your bread, then you're putting a lot of pressure on your art. Yeah. And it's also going to change what you make because you're going to start creating towards what a client might want. And that's kind of leading you into dangerous territory because now again, I'm getting back into stuff that maybe anybody could have made. So like I'm filling orders, I'm selling stuff, but it's not fulfilling for me. And I don't... If you're going to do that, to me, like I would make more money as a graphic designer or a teacher. So like, why am I going to go try and replicate, like be a factory in China for painted stuff? I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I worked for a long time as a graphic designer. Um, and I think that there's like a, this sense that if I just press on and even when you're doing decorative stuff, then there's a lot of competition with other people who are doing decorative things. And you kind of tell yourself, well, there's a cover for every pot. And so there's somebody who's going to like my stuff more than someone else's stuff just because they're drawn to it. There are 7 billion people on the planet. So I'm going to find, the more I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to find my people who are drawn to this. I just have to keep putting it out there and have all that trust and that faith. That's whatever kind of art you're going to do. So Mm -hmm. with conceptual, it's kind of the same. It's like, well, I convinced myself at least, I don't know if I'm right. I'm still waiting for that other shoe to drop, but you get this sense like if I do this for long enough, then will I find that 
space where the people who are interested in this kind of stuff will find you because the, there are collectors for conceptual art. Mm-hmm. It happens. Mm-hmm. Right, there are people who are going to buy that like weird funky thing with the light bulbs that mm-hmm. is hanging through three floors of their house. Or I went to somebody's house recently. Like I do a lot of work on paper, and it's always this question: How do you frame it? How do you think? Because you got to make it accessible, accessible, right? Mm-hmm. And I went to this beautiful home where a collector had a massive, like seventeen foot drawing on paper, and she just tacked it into the wall and let it hang there as is, and it was magnificent. Mm-hmm. Like. If you're just going to make what you're going to make, you have to trust that the person who's going to be drawn to it will eventually find you and collect it. Yeah, my weird, fluttery, double-sided, suspending from the ceiling artworks. I'm sure that, <laughs> come find me. I'm sure <laughs> that there's somebody with this beautiful open space skylight just somewhere that we're like they're going to hang someday. And so if I just keep making more of them. I love it. I love come out. <laughs> I love the bravery of it. I love the kind of integrity of it. Oh, That's awesome. Very inspiring. Um, I also want to honor your work because I feel like <laughs> all these practical things, um, which are so important, are like not the heart of obviously your work, which mm. is, you know. There's like stuff you have to deal with. Right. Because you're a person in, yeah. in the world. Um, so I'm curious about the heart of your work. Like, I guess what what do you see in your life or saw in your life or that really pulls at your heartstrings involving all these things of um culture, identity, past, future, like Mm. what in particular is really... So I guess maybe we can do a history lesson on how to explain it. History is so important. Well, personal history, general history, I don't know. I hope I'm not being boring because this is like (laughs) all I think about all the time. Good. I'm bored. Let's talk about you. At least there's (laughs) one person out there that might find this interesting. Yes, yes. I hope so. Um, Basically, I I grew up in a, a very lovely, large community. It's about 20,000 people now in Midwood. And it's made up of immigrants by choice, but also refugees from a host of Arab countries. And I didn't think anything was unique about that growing up because it was just what I knew. And I lived how I lived and I had my, you know, culture given to me by my family. Thank God. It's it's a beautiful thing. And that continuity was just like a part of my life. So like those Arabic words you talked about or all the foods we ate or the style of our prayers sounds a lot like, you know, it's sounds like Arabic contemporary music and things that were very normal to me. And then I think as you just start to have more of an awareness of the greater Jewish world and the way that people behave generally, it's like, wait a minute, that's not really normal that nobody I know has um, a family heirloom. That's just not a thing. What do you mean by that? Well, you're talking about a community of people who were for mostly forced to vacate where they left Mm -hmm. and leave quickly and Mm -hmm. come with a suitcase and they don't have anything. So and so it's just something, thing. and the the culture and the community, whoever this kind of story did happen to is very um, proud, but in a good way. Like, hey, you know what? This happened to us. We're going to pick up, move on and keep going because I don't want to imbue my children with this victim mentality and I want them to do well. So I'm going to hard scrabble. I'm going to work. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm going to establish myself and I'm just, we have no choice, but we're going to move forward and we're not going to dwell on what happened. There's a lot of almost repression or like this, I kind of think of it as like a silent scream because mm. it's like this giant upheaval. You have about an estimated 850,000 Jewish people who lived in the Muslim world pre-1948. And then all of a sudden in the space of 50 years, they're all gone. Wow. Almost all gone. There's countless stats on this. You can look this up. And a big part of that is assets. Any any kind of 
property, personal belongings, buildings, businesses that people had in a lot, some cases they were able to leave calmly and quietly. And in some cases, no, like you got a a notice in the mail. Well, you better leave in a week or we're putting your whole family in jail. Mm. And that happened to some people, right? And so now they're leaving and they have nothing with them. Maybe they brought a radio or a dress. I met people who showed me like, here's my necklace I was given when I was born. And so I wore that and I left and that's it. And you know, I came into contact with a lot of these type of people once I started doing some digging because I look around and I'm like, that, I don't think that's normal that no one has a family heirloom or photos or, you know, why aren't we talking about the fact that there's such a large contingent of us that speak Arabic as a first language? And I mean, this is a very special thing. We should be proud of it. We should be exploring it. I think that a, a very positive trend in the last 50 years is that a lot of groups are culturally looking inward and being proud of their origins and you know, making documentary films on it or gathering their artifacts and trying to put material out there that will educate others about them. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I, my community did um, start doing that as well within the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. The positive thing. So for me, it was just like, I need to make artwork about this because I feel like this is a big injustice that was done that is not really represented in artwork a lot. And the first series I ever did addressing this, where I kind of took that leap into conceptual, was a collaborative thing I did with my sister-in-law. She's a photographer, mm-hmm. Raquel Mizrahi. And we sat down with these refugees who are very much still living and, you know, some of them young, middle-aged, like they're not you know, my age even. Um, we sat down with them and talked to them about their story. And we had them bring out for us some of those singular objects that they actually did take with them. We photographed them and we used them to create this artwork where we had them list for us, hey, give us the list of people, places, and things that you left behind. And we put that over the photos. Mm. But at the same time, we made a counterpart to every photo about their origin country. We did one about where they are now. Give us a similar list. What are some things that you're proud of now in your life? Mm-hmm. People, places, and things that you really care about. And something beautiful we we saw as a result of that project was a lot of people who went through things like this learned to really not place a value on objects and mm-hmm. things. And it's they said it's all about people. They're very focused on their charity work. They're very focused on their family and being grateful for the things that they have that are really important. And it was a beautiful universal message, I think, for everyone to take a lesson from these people that really did pick themselves up by the bootstraps and rebuild their entire lives. But they're not sitting there going like, hey, I'm so proud I got this fur coat now. They're saying... I'm so glad that I'm able to provide for my family now and I'm surrounded by the people I love and I don't miss or think about the things that came before because I learned that it's mm-hmm. it's less the lasting important thing. So, so it seems like you felt like at least with that work and it seems like also with your other work, there's a certain therapeutic element that you're offering in a sense. I mean, Do you think so or no? I don't know because I don't know how people will react to the work when they see it. All mm-hmm. I know is that like I was looking around and noticing these very singular things about my community and saying I think that these people deserve to be celebrated. They deserve a spotlight and the story deserves to be told. Not that I'm the only one telling it, but I'd like to kind of throw my hat in the ring and mm-hmm. do what I can to help advance this because it's important to me. Mm-hmm. It is my heritage um, and that of mostly everybody that I know and love. And I think it's a beautiful thing and we should be perpetuating and, and telling that story. So that, that's where I started going into conceptual. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, um, at what point did you realize that how you grew up in your culture was different than more normative, like Ashkenazic culture or... Well, it's funny that you say normative because to me, mine was normal. Exactly. You know? No, that's what I'm saying is that... <laughs> Everyone's normative from where they stand. Right. So, um, but I'm saying like there's a certain... I mean, I went to Yeshiva Flatbush. So I had Ashkenazic kids in my class growing up. I was always aware that there was something else. I just didn't really engage with it very much. Um, I just think as you get older and you're more like, 
okay, you're not sitting there reading newspaper articles and getting culturally engaged with other communities when you're 10. It's got to happen when you're an adult. And I guess after college, I don't know, just organically, it's natural. I spend a lot of time in Israel, so maybe going back and forth. And But did you feel that tension, like going to the yeshiva? Um, um, or not really? There's definitely differences between the student body. Like it was definitely like this camp, that camp. Mm-hmm. I'd be lying if I said no. I don't think it was like antagonistic a lot of the time. Because mm-hmm. I mean, kids, kids are mean. Kids are antagonistic. That's <laughs> um, it goes back and forth in both directions. I think human beings just have this like tendency to be very us and them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's it's very hard to say. Like, did you feel different because at the same time, like I mentioned, the community is like twenty thousand people strong. It's right, not like right. I, it was wanting for cultural peers. Like I that. It wasn't an issue. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess I just asked because it seemed like from the original impression I got was that you were kind of enveloped in mm-hmm. this culture. And then at a certain point you realized I think as an adult different. when you turn around and, and just learn about other people in other cultures, not necessarily Jewish even, or yeah. maybe stories about refugees come up in the news and you're like, hey, well, I know like some people have a lot of similarity to what's going on there. And then you look in and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Like I said, it's a, it was like not really so spoken about because it's part of the culture. It's like we're just moving on, but then it's like, wait, no, that's, that's yeah, this is important. I think especially also like when it comes up in Israeli politics a lot, um, not necessarily like internal Israeli politics. But when people talk about Israel and the way that Israel is spoken about in media a lot across the board, it's like that thread of narrative that got very popular. It's very disturbing that it got so popular in the yeah. last ten years that. Oh, you know, Israel's made up of all those Jews are just colonialist Jews who came in and took right, over right. Israel and all this. And it's like, well, if we are talking, if we make an effort to educate and talk more about the reality, which is that over 50% of Israelis are indigenous to Israel and they are Arab Jews who lived in the region for thousands of years, hundreds if not thousands of years in some cases, if we are making artwork and writing articles and just disseminating media about the truth of that, I think that tends to take the teeth out of that very false narrative. And so that's another impetus to continue doing it because it's, it's, it is insulting watching your own erasure right. from public discourse and from what you want to say, normative reality. Like you start to see people talking about you in a way that's, it's just not accurate. It's right, annoying. Right. And when you feel like you're, okay, I'm an adult, I'm a creator, I can do something about that. Right. So that, that's another impetus to go and do that. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, and to clarify, I meant with normative, just like, yeah, that, no, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, that yeah. like there is this general sense of like, mm-hmm. I, mean, I guess you know it's what? a numbers game. I think that there right, are exactly. more Ashkenaz Jews just in existence than there were Spartacus. It wasn't always so, right? That's in the history of Judaism, that's a very rel- relatively recent thing. I think at different points, the majority swung mm-hmm. the other way. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of cultural contributions coming from both sides. The big thing for me is I think it's important to look at Jewish experience as a mosaic. There's a lot of different experiences. We've, we've been in diaspora for 2,000 years. So there's a lot of different developments that have happened since then, a lot of different cultures that have sprung up around our religion and different ways that people practice, different ways people view Sure. Their connection to Judaism, and I think we can only all benefit from educating and preserving all of them. Not that we're trying to maintain division, just sure. trying to benefit from the unique wisdom that everybody can offer. A hundred percent. 
I'm curious of like what interesting types of reactions you've gotten from people, what types of bridges <laughs> you've seen. This is a fun one. <laughs> um, sorry, we'll finish your question. No, no, no. Yeah. Like, um, because it seems like there is this element of like creating bridges in your art mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, between the past, present, but also just between people, mm-hmm. kind of spreading awareness, spreading, you know, mm-hmm. history. Um, so what kind of like, uh, I think also like successful uh, feedback have you gotten or experiences? So I've had a lot of interesting experiences with this because my work does use Arabic in it. And that is a lightning rod for a lot of people. They see Arabic and and they'd be like, wait, they do a double take. And especially if it's combined with some Jewish concepts for a lot of people who didn't grow up this way, it can be striking. It can be... You're saying for Jewish for people. For Jewish people. Are, yeah, yeah. Or even even non-Jews. Like I don't... Unfortunately, it, it, like I said, the narrative is very much... Uh, traditionally has been trying to divorce Judaism from its Arab identity. And there is an element of that in it. Um, and the result is that people just do not associate anything Jewish with anything Arab. Exactly, yeah. Which is almost crazy to someone like me who grew right. up among Arabic-speaking Jews. So for me, it's very normal and natural. This is something that felt normal to me. Like, why? of course, why wouldn't I use Arabic in my own? It's just part of my heritage and who I am. But so <laughs> it's across the board. It's from every direction. It's great reactions. Whenever... Uh, somebody from this type of, uh, I know it's like funny, it's like, where do I even start? <laughs> um, somebody from this cu- culture will see this and just love it, right? They'll be like, wow. From I like feel... the Syrian Jewish community you're saying? Or Not from even the necessarily Arab Syrian, Jewish. Egyptian, yeah. Mor- Moroccan, Lebanese, right. what have you. Um, I was lucky enough to have a platform for my art internationally. I, I presented it with the Jerusalem Biennale. They're a annual survey of mm-hmm. contemporary Jewish art. They take place in Jerusalem every two years and they're a pretty big deal. And I love working with them. It's mm-hmm. always, it's always fun. Um, so last time around, that was in 2017, I created and produced a group show of a, like 17 different artists. We sent work from six different countries to Israel. And it was very much about this theme. We called it homelands. It was about people who come from uh, Muslim countries, but there are Jews and this whole story of migration, immigration, refugee status, how is it affecting us? then and now, and people who are making art were responding to that. So two of my culture shift artworks were hanging in the show, uh, along with, um, there was a, for example, an Egyptian artist, Camille Fox, had a lovely painting of a very famous synagogue in Alexandria. And a lot of people who walked into the show in Israel were themselves Egyptian Jews. And they looked at her painting and they were like, oh, my parents got married at that mm. synagogue. This is amazing. Like there was such a new experience for them yeah. to see themselves represented in contemporary art. It, it was It was very... I don't know, like it was just exciting for a lot of people. So it was really rewarding for me to see that kind of reaction also with my work when people see the Arabic and they're like, oh yes, of course, those phrases, we use them in my family too, though they're great. I had a lot of people within my community who actually sat down and helped me do the translations for these um, phrases. And I gave them copies of the artwork that I made using them when they were done and they they were so proud to hang it up and have this in their home and like, hey, look, it's me. Mm. That was always great. But then... um, like, for example, this show that I have up now is in Williamsburg. So a lot of Satmar Hasidim in that area. And so they're passing by as I'm mm. painting this Arabic mural, 380 square feet. And it's like these big, beautiful glass front storefront windows in the gallery. And as I'm making it and even after, they were like doing double takes and staring at the window like, what is going on? And they asked the gallery owner, like, are you going to have a translation? Because, you know, people are going to think this is one thing, mm. but it's actually a Jewish thing. 
I had a really interesting conversation with uh, Satmar Chassidi. He stopped to talk to me about it, which I thought was great. Wow. So I think people also have this like yeah. impression that, oh, that community is really insular. They won't, they'll just not even look at you. They'll look down right, and they'll right, just right. keep walking. But uh, towards the end of the show, after I finished the Arabic part, I also hung up these beautiful light box artworks that have Hebrew calligraphy on them because they're drawing from the book of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. It's a biblical artwork. And the juxtaposition of the Hebrew with the Arabic it really made him just stop and he was like, what is this? First of all, he was like, who is this for? Is it for, for Jewish people or not Jewish people? I like, couldn't figure out. Like, who? I was like, well, it's for whoever wants to enjoy it. And, you know, whoever wants to buy it. Who, you, who do you think is going to buy it? I was like, whoever wants to. Like, great. Um, right. But he was like, well, so what, what's going on? What, he's trying to read the Pesukim, that I, you know, the verses yeah. that I put from Kohelet in, in the artworks. And we're having this great discussion. Like, here I am. It was really ironic. I'm in my pants and my tank top setting up this show, and I'm standing on the street having a conversation with this Satmar Chassid with his curls and his hat and his coat about the book of Ecclesiastes and how the core of the issue and these artworks and in the book is how you need to make sure that you're focusing ultimately on things that last, like belief in God and um, study of, of the Bible and traditional values before you just like run headfirst into every new trend and thing that's being pushed and sold at you in contemporary culture. And it's it was just such a funny juxtaposition, like the artwork and me and this guy. And right, right. He was like, best of luck, you know? And it was just <laughs> amazing. Um, but then I've had like some kind of negative reactions too. Um, I was in Jerusalem this past December doing an artist residency with um, a thing called Art B&B. It was this great program. Did you bring your kids to... No, no. This this time they stayed behind. The family family nice. very very much indulged me and watched them, and I owe them a big wow. giant thank you. How long were you gone for? It was was it? I think it was two weeks. Wow! I like I like really really got away with it. It wow. was it was like like murder. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I um, got everybody a big present and a thank you after that. <laughs> um, so it was a great program. They they brought international artists to work together with local artists to create public artworks art in the street. So I think a couple of my murals are probably still up unless somebody has whitewashed them by now. Um, I, I was, my whole concept back then was I was doing a pathway of murals connecting the gallery, Beta, who was hosting me in Jerusalem, between them and the traditional Syrian synagogue of Ades, which is in the neighborhood of Nakhlaot. It's like a very mm, artisty, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, student, young vibe neighborhood right now. But a hundred years ago, it was actually the Syrian neighborhood mm. of Jerusalem. And there's a very well-known and original synagogue still standing there. They have some beautiful murals in the interior of the city, actually just paid to restore them. It's like a really special, I have a special connection to the building, you know, over the years praying there and visiting there a lot with my family. And I just felt like a lot of big thing for my work is connecting past and present and remembering and just being aware of what's around you. So I made that pathway and I... At every point, I, I used some, I used imagery from like the visual language, let's say, of the Islamic world, because that's where, you know, let's say people creating in my community a hundred or more years ago would have what made work that looked like Im- that. What type of visual language do you mean? Like uh, if you go to the Met, for example, any major world art museum has their Islamic section. So mm-hmm. like those very like vegetal patterns, things involving calligraphy, mm-hmm. um, patterning geometry, like these these very intricate and beautiful mm-hmm. type of works. I, I, I've been studying those for a long time and sketching them. And so I said, why don't I make these set of murals that form this pathway? I'm going to use these beautiful motifs and I'm going to combine each spot with an appropriate, again, phrase from that collection of Judeo-Arabic phrases. And I'm going to calligraphy them in Arabic and 
I was really excited about it. As I was working on them, people were loving, you know, the decorative part. And then I was like, here, I'm going to strategize. I've only got a week or so to make these. I'm going to put down all the pretty decorative parts and then I'll add in all the calligraphy later. I'll bring them all up to speed. So that way the pathway at least is completed. Let's see what I finish. So it was interesting because week one, I'm putting up all the decorative stuff and people are like, wow, this is amazing. Kol <laughs> Like in Israel, everyone loves to you know, put in their two cents, offer to pick up a brush and help. It was a like, wonderful, wonderful time. And yeah. everyone's just... Then I'm telling them what my plan is for next week. I'm going to add in the Arabic calligraphy. And I would get these reactions like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Mm. Oh, no, that, that'll make people really upset around here. You need to be sensitive. We're in a sensitive time right now. And it's like, I get it. Of course, there's, there's like that whole really hairy tangle of problems there. But mm-hmm. I, I kind of felt at the same time, like just because there are some bad players who happen to speak Arabic as well, and they share that culture and they're... They're doing some, I don't want to speak out of turn, obviously, like very, very awful things. Murder and terrorism is awful. Okay. Right. We're allowed to say that. Um, but just because they're behaving that way doesn't mean that they own Arabic and the entire right. culture. And if you withhold creating things to do with that, then you're almost handing it to them on a silver platter. You're saying, yes, I, I divest from this. This isn't me. That's just you. You just get to own this. And I don't think that they deserve that. And I don't think. Yeah. Do you think the criticism is coming from people who don't have that? Arab-Jewish background. So I'm going to tell you really interesting. In Israel, it happens to be the opposite. Mm. It's very surprising. It's very sad. I understand it again. I tried to be sensitive. Um, essentially what happens is I think that it, also in Israel there's a big hairy, again, there's a word, history of marginalization of Jews that come from Arab countries. It's just the reality. We all know that it's there. Uh, it's getting better. It's getting a lot better. I don't think, or whatever, that it, Right. But it's there. Right. And so people from the older generation, especially in these communities, kind of felt like I don't I don't want to draw attention mm. to this part of me. I'm trying to put it aside so that I don't get regarded just as that. I want to move on and I want to again, there's that immigrant. I'm joining the general culture right. and I I don't want to be identified uh, pigeonholed into this one thing which you totally get. I think it's just unfortunate that that was the culture mm-hmm. surrounding these things is that it's a negative thing where I've only ever viewed it as positive. But again, I was lucky enough to grow up in an environment where I didn't deal with the discrimination issues because of this culture. I was growing up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. It's very different, almost opposite, right? right? So for those people, you know, shop owners that were only too happy to let me do this artwork on their stores, and then I'd be like, hey, can I sign it? I've got this like tag that I do, and it's got like some Hebrew and Arabic woven together. And like, oh, no, don't do the Arabic. Mm. I don't want Arabic, just, just Hebrew. And this is but an then, Israel, Yeah. But then at week two, when I actually put them, I was really nervous about it because I, I don't want to be upsetting and insulting to people. It, you know what? Okay, I get it. The average person in Israel now, when they're going to see some Arabic calligraphy on the street, maybe this will one day change, and I hope that it does. But when they see that, they're immediately thinking that it's talking about something completely different than what I'm intending. Right. Um, and I got really nervous about that. I don't want to make people feel upset with my art. That's not the intention. I don't need to be provocative just for that prov- provocation's sake. And Ultimately, I decided to do it because of the reasons we just spoke about. And when I put them up, we had this really funny phenomenon where people would just stop and chat and everyone wanted to talk to me about their cultural heritage and ask me about what I was doing. And nobody got angry. They just were excited about it. And again, offering to help and wax poetic about where they came from and their culture and that mosaic. And I, I was very pleasantly surprised at the reaction. And if somebody in the street, there was one woman who, again, was from this culture herself, clearly, 
And she was like, why are you doing this? It's just going to upset. She started yelling at me as I'm, I'm doing the calligraphy. And the, I didn't have to say anything to her because actually this Russian guy mm-hmm. stopped her on the street. And he's like, but it's beautiful. Uh-huh. She's Jewish. Don't you understand? Half the country is this wow, too. This amazing. is who we are. And I'm like, yeah. Wow. So then <laughs> yeah, like I, I didn't yell at her or anything. I just yeah. like, like to do what I'm doing and positively engage and, and open up that conversation. The re- her conversation and objection is almost the reason why I'm doing it at all. So we I ended up just having this really great exchange. And she walks away at the end and she says, Dafka mm. uh, Yafel You know, the blue color is nice in the end. It is nice. <laughs> it's like I love being it. cool about it. Yeah. What about um, Arab Muslims, um, Arab Christians? Have you gotten good so, feedback or any bridges there? So inst- Instagram is, is in making some interesting uh, opportunities okay. with that. Um, Arab Christians, I have not had so much contact with for whatever reason. I just haven't come across them. I actually studied with a Muslim calligrapher in the north of Israel a few years ago. I just came and spent this wonderful afternoon in his studio and he was showing me, you know, how to better my technique. And of course, only positive reaction. And he put up on his Facebook at the end of that day, his name is Kamil Kadura Kamil. He put at the end of the day, he was like, oh, this wonderful American woman came to study and da, da, da. And the, I mean, he specifically didn't say Jewish. I think, again, it's just touchy mm. for people. And there was so much positive feedback on his post they was like wow mashallah like god should bless her it's amazing which that she cares about arabic calligraphy i think people who love the art form just love it and it doesn't matter who's doing it i've had um people from the our world who are really like reinventing the art form that i follow on instagram i just like i mean i love calligraphy i could stare at it all day and i've had them like comment on my work or like my posts and comment like hey this is great and we'll have these discussions about like technicality in the art form like oh the negative space in the letters and how it makes these interesting shapes and is that informing your work and how's that going and when's your next workshop i want to come to this do you want to do a lesson in your gallery space like well these fun interactions and conversations i'll have back and forth and messaging that like i think i think guess without instagram that never would have happened but I, I like being part of that community of artists who are working with arabic calligraphy it's just such an, an mm. expansive art form and it's never really been in it's some of the, one of the most involved and knowledgeable calligraphers that I know who actually runs a store where he sells the materials where most Muslim Arabs in, in, in the US get their supplies from he's Jewish he's an he's you know so mm-hmm. I don't think it matters to these people I think if you're yeah. you're culturally Arab and you're doing good work you're just doing good work it doesn't really come up they're not talking to me about my Judaism we're just talking about art interesting um, I find that kind of interesting, though, that the Judaism doesn't come up. Um, I guess, like, I hear what you're saying in terms of there's calligraphers and people like calligraphy. But I guess, like, because your work is obviously so conceptual mm-hmm. and it's not really, I mean, it's great that people enjoy the the physical part of it. But I'm curious of, like, in person, because you're saying people are messaging you. Do you get in person, like, any more relationships building or do people come into your gallery who are a Muslim who it allows for a dialogue. Well, so or... I'm not in the gallery every day myself. Right. Lindsay's there. You can go say hi to her. You can catch me there yeah. at, the, at our events. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I hear from her and that the reaction is mostly positive from everybody yeah. on the street, which is so nice. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, at the opening, there was a guy who walked in who saw me painting all week, and he was like, oh, I'm bringing my friend. He's Iraqi. He's really into heritage, too. He's, mm-hmm. like, you know, always trying to perpetuate. He's, like, he's an expert in Chaldean, like, all these, like, ancient languages that people want to preserve and revive. And, and I don't know. I mean, I guess 
people just respond to it because I think it's very universal that everybody wants to remember who they are and look into their personal history. Like, why are people so obsessed with 23andMe now or Ancestry.com? And all these mm. things. Like, there's like that feeling yeah. people have. I want to know where I came from. I want to pay homage if I like it, I guess. Um, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, and I don't get into... I mean, that's something that happens to me a lot is like when I meet somebody new and I'm yeah. talking to them about my work, then people really are excited to share about their personal heritage and history and get into an identity discussion. Right, 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 right. Um, I guess as of yet, I just haven't encountered that many Muslims so far. I don't know. Because <laughs> it's really, it's interesting just because it's like there's this element, which I, fi- I, I feel from your art, where you want people to know that they're were were so many Arab Jews and they did have to leave and this kind of injustice that happened, that's definitely an element mm-hmm. of your art. And I think that in itself can create a lot of um, conflict, dialogue, um, don't you think? Like, well, it's, or- it's interesting because going back to a history lesson, a lot of times what, what you'll see, it's like this phenomenon where the Jews got along very well with their Muslim neighbors on a personal level. And certainly when I go to Israel, for example, I'll get along really great with the Arabs that I have to come in contact with and I'll practice my Arabic with them. And yeah. like, they'll, you know, think it's really cute. And like, well, we'll have a nice comment, like person to person. There's never really a problem. It's when governments get involved, right? That people are like, Hey, this happened or that happened. Like on a global scale, my neighbor right. didn't push me out of my house. The government did. So, you know, maybe you'll have people that'll say that the, the, the government, was the cause of whatever happened and on a personal level there were there were a lot of positive relations like I, I have relatives that told me for example like on the end of the Passover holiday when now the Jews are allowed to eat leavened foods the Muslim neighbors would like come to their doors with trays of fresh baked goods and like as a just a goodwill gesture like hey we know your holiday's over and you haven't had a chance to go get your bread yet like here's some for you and like it was a custom where they had exchange like that it's a beautiful thing no right. one really talks about that I'm not making this art to be like, hey, look what they did to us. Aren't they awful? It's more just like, this is a thing that happened. It was very unfortunate. How do we move forward from this point and how did it affect us? But it's not necessarily um, a barb thrown at like individuals. No, I, I definitely think so. Like, I definitely think you're wanting to create bridges. You yeah. know, I think all... Um, and I think it's just more complicated than an us and them narrative. Like even, you know, my dad did business in Egypt many years ago. We had his contacts there that he became personal friends with and like visited them in the hospital and would talk to him on the phone a lot. Like it's the story on the ground and the reality of how people relate to each other is often a lot more nuanced and complicated than you're going to get from like the zoomed out picture. Yeah. What I'm just saying though, I'm just, and I don't have to harp on this point, we can Mm -hmm. move on, but I'm just saying that I think it's very clear you're not trying to attack like Mm -hmm. any... Um, um, like Arab Muslims or Arab Christians, or I think that's very clear. But I'm just saying that there does I, and maybe your art is just more about the bridges within the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just not hearing, and I don't want to harp on this. And mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm just saying that when you said that the calligrapher didn't want to mention that you're Jewish, uh, that seems like I, I mean that's that is probably that's more a, of like a Jewish Palestinian issue, uh-huh. which is like a whole nother thing. Uh-huh. You know, like for a guy living in the north of Israel in like a mostly um, Muslim and Christian village. Right. Maybe he just felt like a lot of his followers don't want to see that he was posing a Jewish person. I don't know. Right, right, right. It just, okay. it just seemed to me like it was a yeah. very purposeful, like, hey, this wonderful American person came to learn Arabic calligraphy. Whereas that'll be celebrated. Maybe right. it's a way almost not to... 
it's a way to just kind of like have honest, open dialogue and conversation and celebrate the things that we're doing aside from all the politics. Whereas right. when you use buzzwords that are going to draw a lightning rod specifically to other issues, which you really don't have any interest in being involved in, you know, but like you know for what's him. actually so fascinating yeah. is that I get it that to him. Like if he said the word Jewish, now everyone's going to come down on him. It's like, that's not even the point, guys. Like I just had a nice time, you know? I, and No, but what's so fascinating actually is that. To him and to his community, his followers, mm-hmm. the word Jewish is a trigger word, right? Mm-hmm. To the response you get from some Jews is that the word Arab, Arab right. is a trigger word, right? You know, so like your work is a lot about trying to desensitize people to like Arab and Arabic. It shouldn't be a trigger. I think it's a it's clearing a, up of misconception in a big way. Yes, right. it shouldn't be a trigger because it is you. Like, stop it already. It's just also really weird, right? When you think about this, like this whole region of the world that. Every single country within it is identifying as Arab, except for this one tiny little sliver that's like the size of New Jersey. So like everyone right there, right smack in the middle of it is just not right, for right, some right. reason. Like what? I it's hear. just weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like, like everyone skirts around that. And it's like, well, if you're going to call, it, it is what it is. Like right. we are, we are. I don't think there's value in denying what we are. Sure. That's only going to shoot ourselves in the foot down the line. I hear you. I right. hear you. No, I, I hear what you're saying, and I hear kind of where your mission lies with yeah. your conceptual art. Because um, you're not, yeah, I don't think you're saying like to the Arab Muslim, Arab Christian world, like, listen about this. You're saying more to listen about this. I think your direction is it's more. It's just like it is what it the, is. So we can make art about what it is unapologetically. I don't think we have to hide behind something and try and like do mental gymnastics to say that we are something else, but we're not really, but we're thing. And how do we feel about it? Like, it just is. Why can't I just be what I am without it being like, you know? I hear. So what do you, what do you love about the Syrian community because I am not so familiar. I've heard about it in passing. Um, I, um, sometimes not the most positive oh. thing, um, but I don't know anything um, about it, about what makes it unique. Um, I think you're my closest Syrian Jewish connection, <laughs> so you represent a lot right now. Um, Pressure. <laughs> um, and I guess apologies for saying not the... I, no, it's fine. You New York to, is hard. New yeah. York is hard culture. We hear a lot of negative things about different communities. Um, but what do you love about it? What do you think is special? What is, what unique um, things does it bring? Well, especially in a community that is so large, I don't think there's any like one way of being that could speak for all of those people. Right. There are many different age groups, many different backgrounds, many different socioeconomic realities for people you know like you'll obviously have the stereotypes that will come out about the group as if as if they were all like one homogenous group living this one right, right. way and like it's ridiculous because if you spend any amount of time there then you're gonna see like yes there are some people who live in these like magnificent homes that that could fit like synagogues in them and then there's people who are living in basement apartments and like right. you know it's just any normal community spectrum um what's unique about it i think is um i think what has been unique about it thus far we're five generations into migrating to this country and there's still this sense in the community of like we identify as syrian which is also like a its own special kind of good way weird um i think there's like a very strong identity current running through the whole community that is 
like a common thread between people, which is really nice. And there's that sense of familiarity, even if I haven't met another Syrian person, if we're like in a foreign country together and we happen to like catch each other's eye or meet up in a public space, like we can become fast friends. Well, what is it? I mean, there has to be more than just the land element of it. Like what, there must be some like kind of cultural similarity. Yeah, well, of course. It's all these people that came from the same place or cooking the same food and we're praying Uh the same way and we've got the same traditional songs and... It, are the songs a lot different than like other countries or other Arab countries? Yeah. Look, I mean, throughout the, I, I can't speak to every community, only to mine. And I think throughout the Arab world that there are these like PUT and these poetry, mm-hmm. this tradition of, you know, Hebrew poetry and, and singing songs on Shabbat. Every community has their special Shabbat songs. Sure, but sure, sure. I think throughout the Arab world, the Syrian community was always known for its chazanut, its PUT, for its pismonim, for being kind of at the forefront of development of that and i mean it's still a big deal today in the community every house in the community has their we call it the red book it's a shirush bacha halal zimra it's a like this book a compendium of like hundreds of of traditional and more modern pismonim and like around the shabbat table families will usually sit and, and sing these songs together especially at special occasions like they'll break out the books and everybody will get to and like everyone knows the tunes and everyone's been you know my 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 synagogue has a class for for kids where they come and they learn these these songs, and so it's like a, a continuity, a perpetuity, mm-hmm. like a perpetuating of values and culture. So, I don't know going forward how much it will continue because I think that America, at the end of the day, will have its effect on every community. Who knows what it'll look like in the next hundred years? But at least for the past hundred years, they've done a very good job of preserving, continuing, mm-hmm. and celebrating that that culture. Are there big Syrian? Jewish um, musicians that you can find on like YouTube. Yeah, or I'm anything. trying to think. Okay, so there's a first of all this uh, project that a relative of mine, relative by marriage, uh, had started. It's called pizmonim.org. P i z m o n i m dot org, and they've actually cataloged almost every single pizmon and also the traditional readings of the of the Bible. You know the the parashah portion in the Syrian style from all the most important and prominent community, Chazanim, some of whom are now dead, <laughs> have passed away. And it's really interesting that they gathered that there as a resource because, you know, if somebody wants to learn how to read the Megillah in the Syrian way, like they can go and learn from the best of the best, even if cool. they're no longer living. Like it's like having somebody sit next to you in your living room, step by step learning with you. It's, it's wild. Wow. Almost like a Tichiyat HaMetim, right? Like, awesome. <laughs> um, so you can definitely check all these songs out on pizmonim.org. There are Pizmon contests held mm. for kids in a couple of the synagogues in my in my area, like twice a year. Those are really fun. Um, there's uh, a couple of bands that were started. I don't know if they're practicing anymore. They're using traditional Arabic instruments like the oud and the anun, mm-hmm. the kanun. Um, I don't know. I don't know offhand the names of all these like musical projects that are going on now, but there are a few. Mm-hmm. And then in everyone's home, they're always ongoing. So, well, and and right now, are there some big like Syrian, um, Syrian American rabbis that are like prominent in the community, or not as much? Yeah, I mean, it's a big community. There are a lot of very well attended large synagogues, mm-hmm. so each one has its own rabbi head. I think when the community first came over, there was like one specific chief rabbi, mm-hmm. but I don't know how people relate to that nowadays mm-hmm. when the community is so large. I don't know. Cool. And what do you most relate to in terms of the this, this Syrian Jewish? Like what, what's for you the thing that you 
like what I come back to the most. I mean, yeah, like gives you most comfort or gives you the most. It's just how I live. So it would be hard to distill it into individual things. Like it just, like again, it just is. It's always been. It's just continuing for me. Like it's like how you, you're saying how you eat, how you, how yeah. you pray, how you think. Like it's just, I don't know. Yeah. Think. <laughs> I mean, all of it, right? Like yeah. I, I pray the way I was yeah. raised to pray, which is Syrian. I, if I'm sitting around the Shabbat table with my family, we're singing those songs, we're ha- having that food. It's, cool. I don't want to like, marginalize it to songs and food sure, sure like sure. culture eventually always distills down into that right, i right, think right, right, but right. um it is also a way of thinking and approaching torah learning approaching a worldview i think there's like a really important um thing at least in my home that was very like you know what we're jewish we're religious but that means that we're continually engaging with our uh jewish thought and the way we relate to it and the world around us and we believe very much in the equal weight given to secular learning and to religious learning, and actually they're all one and the same because learning is learning, and that the the greater world has something contribute to contribute to our understanding of our Judaism, and it's only going to enrich us, and we should engage with it. And the way we do that successfully as Jews is by having a really strong Torah knowledge foundation. Mm-hmm. And so that's not. I know that's a worldview that not every community shares. Like some people are more uh, put up the barrier, so I don't trip. Which so you're saying that right. in general you feel like the, the Syrian community has that? In yes. General. I think that is, that is a very traditionalist Syrian view, like we call it like learning and earning, right? Men are going to go to work and they're going to be out and, and women are going to be in the secular sphere and we're going to work, we're, but we're also going to study Torah and mm-hmm. we're going to do both of those things. Like in the tradition of, you know, older generations of rabbis who like right you point to Rashi he was a rabbi and he was in the vineyard Rambam was a rabbi and he was also a doctor mm-hmm. that you need both together and it's engagement with the rest of the world that's going to make us more well-rounded and healthier and happier Jews right um I don't know what time we're at right now 250 forget when we started but it's probably been about an hour <laughs> crazy um i guess it feels I like just, a minute <laughs> <laughs> we were in the flow i just i love one, to talk yeah <laughs> i had one last question for you about oh is there a tension um with like women inclusion within the syrian community like obviously that's a tension that exists a lot within uh judaism in general women finding their place mm-hmm. um i'm wondering like um if you have experienced that, you know, cause I know within like, say, um, the, even within the Orthodox show that I go to and there's other Orthodox shows that there's an Orthodox show nearby that has like a Maharat, you know, and, and women becoming rabbis in the Orthodox movement. And I'm curious to just like, so what's, there's not a lot of women becoming rabbis in my community. I think that there are definitely some prominent women educators who have made it their their life's mission to study Torah and be very, very engaged with yeah. it. And people like Vivian Hittery or Esther Hittery, they teach classes. And Mrs. Esther Hittery is actually uh, the principal of Yeshiva Flapish High School now. Mm-hmm. Um, these women teach classes to men and women and internationally as well as in the community. They're very respected. They're very learned. And men and women will come and sit in their classes and, and learn from them, which I think is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't speak for all women. And again... It's not a homogenous right. landscape within that community. It's 20,000 people. So I'm sure there are certain elements that maybe grew up in a very traditionalist and strict home where we're like, this is your role and that's it. And maybe they're struggling with that. I was lucky enough to just be in a place where like everyone needs to be learning and everyone needs to be studying yeah. and growing. And 
that was very encouraging for me. And I, I realized, I, I don't know if I'm singing, if my family was singing on that, I hope not. I, I don't think they were. I think I do have a lot of contemporaries who are also mm-hmm. very comfortable living in their, you know, work-life balance mm-hmm. and religion balance. I, some and some. It's a, I think it's a modern, a symptom of modern life. Is more there than Syrian any- life. Yeah. Like, hey, where, how do I find my place as a Jewish woman within all of this? Because I, I want to... I want to be a mom and raise my traditional beautiful home and, and have all the religious trappings. And then I also want to right. go be a filmmaker. I don't know. Like exactly. it, it, it's not a thing. I don't think that a lot of women had the luxury of struggling with in previous generations. Right. So in any community, that's going to, you know, like right. I mean, at the very physical basic level, we didn't have dishwashers a hundred years ago. So like somebody had to sit there and do that. And yeah. so you didn't have time to think about like, how do I navigate my many identities? There's no identity. <laughs> like You got to do this. You're just going to do it. Um, so there's no issue with w- blurring women's faces in the Syrian Jewish community? I, traditionally, no. Um, there is a publication within our community that does um, not print women's, women's faces, women's photos. Is that photos. a new thing? Or? It's something within the last 20 years. It's not like, I mean, they, they, they're they pretty widely distributed. I think, like, again, talking about many streams within sure, the sure. same like many currents in the same stream. So there's certainly like the more right-wing extremist. Do people identify as Haredi? Do they use those words? Yeah. Or they, um, um, not uh, really. In, in our community, it's called black hat. Oh, okay. Because they actually wear the black hats, right? Okay. So if you're more, if you, there certainly are Syrians who are in that vein. And if they identify more with them, then they probably have community magazine as the name of the publication in their house. And like that doesn't show women. Okay. And there are publications that have no problem with it at all within the community. Like it's a, Again, not homogenous. Mm-hmm. Whatever okay. whatever stream of Jewish thought and trends are happening in the greater world are probably happening right. with us too. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for educating me. Oh. Hopefully educating some viewers, listeners, not viewers, thank God, because I haven't slept. <laughs> um, and I, I'm very inspired by you. your work. I am really excited to come see it um, and, and inspired by you know, your bravery and, and you're mm. really putting yourself out there and doing it with two little kids. God um, bless them and my family and for making it possible. Thank you for having me here today. I guess I'll just sign off by reminding everybody again, it's Black Diamond Gallery event this May 19th and on June 6th. So please, oh, check out my Instagram yeah. at Lenore Cohen so I can bother you about it there. <laughs> um, hope to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to HivriaCast. I'm Alad Harai. If you'd like to hear more and read more of our work, you can follow us by going to hevria.com or facebook.com slash mag. We've been recording at the Kalal Studios in New York City, and the music that you're hearing is Voice Lessons by Darshan. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing and hearing from you again. Darme